0: This is a Federal News Network podcast. The old question persists. Why should it be so difficult to remove underperforming federal employees? Our next guest argues that feds could still become at-will employees with fewer job protections, but that wouldn't mean a return to the patronage system. He was special assistant to the president for domestic policy during the Trump administration. who's now with the Conservative America First Policy Institute, James Shirk. He talked with Tom Temen.
1: The thesis of the white paper you've written is exactly that, that the argument always seems to be the way things are now versus patronage as we had it in the 19th century. You're arguing a good, independent, fair-minded civil service can exist
0: even with at-will employment basis. That's exactly right. We've had, for years, federal employees themselves are reporting huge problems with performance management, Every year on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, it's either the top or the second greatest pain point that federal employees report, that their agency just doesn't handle poor performance well. And the reason for that is pretty obvious, that it's you basically have to uh, wage an entire trial at law to fire an employee. And whenever you ask, well, why don't we do it differently? Why don't we streamline these protections? The answer is, well, look, we don't want to go back to the spoil system. But what these arguments miss is that when Congress created the civil service in the Pendleton Act in 1883 and for the next six decades, federal employees had no right to appeal the removal. The the founders of the civil service wanted a merit service. They were very concerned that you hired based on uh, effectiveness and performance and not on campaign donations or political connection. But they were equally concerned that, look, if you've got a bad performer, you've got to be able to fire them. We can't seal up incompetence in the federal workforce. That's the way the federal government operated for six decades, uh, and that's the way many state governments operate now. You can have a professional civil service without making it uh, a three-year uh, odyssey to try and fire a poor performer.
1: And how does all this tie in with what is available under Title V? In other words, could you amend Title V to be able to have this at will? I mean, what would be required to get to that state?
0: Well, obviously, it very straightforward. Congress has the ability to amend Title V, all these protections are contained within Title V, and I, I would argue that Congress ought to uh, make federal employees at will under Title V. Now, that you'd still have your protections against things like racial discrimination or political discrimination or your supervisors asking for campaign contributions, but the agency wouldn't be required to prove in the first instance that was Bob's performance sufficiently bad to justify firing, or should he have only been you know, demoted, should he have been suspended for a few months but not fired, you wouldn't have months and years of litigation over these questions. The agency could decide if they thought that Bob or Jane or whoever's performance was uh, was bad enough.
1: You cite a couple of cases, and some of which I remember, in the case of the late Senator Ted Stevens, who was exonerated, I think, of corruption charges, totally exonerated. And it turned out that uh, exculpatory evidence was withheld by federal prosecuting ap- and, uh, career employees in the Justice Department, and nothing really happened to them for what was really, in some sense, malpractice uh, as prosecutors.
0: This is very concerning that you've got a situation right now with these removal protections, that you can have horrendous misconduct by federal employees and they stay on the job. What happened in Senator Stevens' case is the prosecution withheld exculpatory evidence that would have exonerated him, showing that he was you know, paying or trying to pay what he understood to be fair market value for these services he was receiving. They didn't share that information with his defense team, which violated his constitutional rights. Uh, Judge Emmett Sullivan, who overheard or oversaw the corruption trial, called this the worst misconduct he'd seen in a generation from federal prosecutors. And so what happens to these two federal prosecutors whose unconstitutional uh, you know, vendetta against a, a U.S. senator uh, caused him to lose his re-election bid? DOJ did not even try to fire them. They merely proposed suspending these two prosecutors for a, a collective 55 days. And even that, under our civil service laws, was not allowed to stick. The, uh, the Merit Systems Protection Board overturned the suspensions on a, a technicality, ordered the Justice Department to pay those employees back wages, but 30000 in back wage, and $643,000 in attorney's fees. I mean, it, it was just outrageous. And it's not an isolated incident. You have know, things like EPA employees pawning off agency laptop and uh, cameras uh, worth thousands of dollars, pawning it off for their personal profit, and the agency doesn't even try and fire them. I mean, it's the system's just horribly out of whack, and we don't need this morass in order to avoid the spoil system.
1: We're speaking with James Shirk, director of the Center for American Freedom at the America First Policy Institute. There's also the issue that comes up in the annual employee viewpoint surveys and the commentary related there, too, that very often the good-performing employees are the ones most upset by the fact that the bad performers do persist. And so in some sense, the argument could be made that with a easier removal process, the better performers would be that much more empowered and maybe motivated.
0: Oh, that's exactly right. When the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey comes in every year, uh, this is one of the top pain points that federal employees report. Most federal employees don't appreciate having to uh, carry uh, their poor performers uh, slack they want to accomplish their agency mission and they feel that these employees who are not doing the job uh, aren't keeping up with them. We also see this in the uh, the Merit Principles uh, Survey, uh, other groups like uh, government executive uh, magazines, commission surveys. That find that 80 percent of federal employees believe that firing procedures uh, federal firing procedures prevent agencies from appropriately dealing with poor performers and look president trump issued a number of executive orders designed to make it easier to fire uh, poor performers in the federal government and there were uh, some media groups did surveys of federal employees views on these orders and the unions at the time who claimed to speak for the broader federal workforce were saying this is an attack on federal employees this is so terrible How could you possibly wage this war on federal employees? The federal employees themselves, by a two-to-one margin, supported these executive orders. Federal employees, most federal employees work hard, want their agencies to succeed, and they don't want poor performers holding them back.
1: And in an at-will system then, how do you envision it would actually look day-to-day? That is to say, what would it take to fire someone? What protections would remain and what apparatus would be removed as the way you envision it?
0: Well, look, I I think it would work a lot like it does in the private sector, where in the private sector, you can't simply fire someone for any reason. If there's racial discrimination or religious discrimination or whistleblowing, there's procedures in place to protect against those sort of discriminatory or retaliatory removals. But as long as you can show that you're removing someone for a legitimate reason and not for you know some sort of impermissible you know uh, cause like that then you don't have to litigate you know how good was this employee's performance was it really yeah i mean the the sort of burden of proof that agencies have to surmount now uh, showing that a, a preponderance or a substantial evidence justified removal depending on which authority they're using just doesn't exist in the private sector and, and that's what i would imagine now you would have you know internal agency procedures, just as there are in the private sector. You know it's it's very rare in the private sector that you've got a supervisor who's got the unilateral authority to fire everyone, you know, who reports to him. You've got procedures that agency HR sets up to make sure the authority is being uh, used appropriately, but it doesn't tie you down in years and years of of red tape. Uh, the Government Accountability Office estimates it takes. Six months to a year to go through the internal agency process to remove a poor performer under Chapter 43. And that's before you factor in any external appeals uh, to the Merit Assistance Protection Board or anything like that. We would just basically propose, you know, getting rid of that process. Uh, where you you need multiple years to satisfy this while retaining all the safeguards against things like politically motivated removals, uh, you know, racial uh, discrimination, religious discrimination, anything like that. Keep the EEOC process, keep the inspector generals, uh, but don't require this trial at law every time you want to hire a poor performer.
1: So it would not get to be, say, like Ford Motor Company under Henry Ford II when he fired Lee Iacocca. He said, sometimes you just don't like someone.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, look, I I think you know, sometimes you've got personality clashes. And if you're saying that this person just you know, doesn't uh, work in its personality clash, as long as it's not based on the color of their skin or where they worship or you know, making campaign contributions, I'd say that's fine. Uh, that you know, sometimes you need a team that meshes together. And look, the, the senior executive service operates – uh, not that different uh, from these rules. It's very easy for agencies to reassign uh, senior executives. Uh, it's very easy just you know, give the senior executive a, a low performance rating. They can't appeal that performance rating, and you're actually required by law uh, if they get two low performance ratings to uh, to fire the senior executive. Uh, so the senior executive service operates under something not terribly removed from this right now, and what we would propose is extend that to the remaining 2.1 million federal employees. James Shirk is director of the Center for American Freedom at the America First Policy Institute. We'll post this interview along with a link to his paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive.
2: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the US Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration. And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas, and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
3: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation.
2: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
3: Uh, in america and certainly within me uh about the importance of being empathetic uh in uh in in the way i lead to be inclusive uh to be uh uh, to to lead in a way uh in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community so it certainly has been a challenging year uh to adapt uh but i'm happy to say that uh i'm still here and we're moving forward
2: (laughs) perfect
3: that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. and And it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in america is and but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide so there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career I, I will tell you even uh after the murder of george floyd and my role at the u.s Cha- chamber of commerce uh to galvanize the business community uh inspired by that tragedy It's
2: fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them?
3: You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute I think is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King.
2: Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career, um, what comes to mind there?
3: Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk no matter rain, sleet, or snow,
2: And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.